The Murti Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Good afternoon. I'm Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us today. The topic for our teleconference this month is how to retain your top talent by filing the multinational executive managerial capac- uh, category filing. Joining me on the panel today are two of my esteemed colleagues at the Murthy Law Firm, Kenya Sanders, who has actually over 25 years of experience just in and of by herself in U.S. immigration law. And we have Joanna Gavigan, who has about seven years of experience in the field of immigration law. So just by way of introduction, as many of us know, the wait time for foreign nationals who have an approved I-140 petition, either in the EB-2 or the EB-3 categories, is reaching an all-time high. Right now, for instance, for Indian nationals, the waiting time is projected to be about 20 years for priority dates to become current, and that that too in the EB-2 category. So, of course, all of your top talent, your employees are very likely to come to each of you as employers, whether in HR or as companies, to ask you if there's an alternate way for you as an employer to sponsor the foreign national employee and their family so that they could get the green card slightly faster before their children age out and all of those issues. Uh, This is, in fact, probably the most common question I'm asked in my consultations each day. So in today's teleconference, we will focus on the options for multinational uh, employers. That is, you as a company, if you have a qualifying related company outside of the United States and you are willing to sponsor certain employees who will work either in a managerial or an executive positions and it's the filing for the green card is referred to as the EB1C, multinational executive manager cap category. So in order to continue the discussion and see if you and your company can qualify, we will break down what type of position will qualify for the EB1C classification, and then we'll discuss how you as an employer hopefully can take advantage of this category of filing to ensure that you're able to retain your top talent. So Kenya, what exactly is the EB1C then? Well, Sheila, EB1C is one of the employment-based visa categories uh, that are in the EB1 category. So there is the EB1A, which is the um, extraordinary ability individuals, EB1B, which are uh, outstanding professors and researchers, and then we have the EB1C, which are executives or managers who work for multinational corporations. Just to be clear, EB1 is the employment-based first preference category. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. So um, now EB1C category was designed to facilitate the transfer of executives and managers within multinational companies to permanent positions in the U.S., But unlike most green card applications under the EB-2 and EB-3 classification, this classification, the multinational executive or manager, does not require the filing of a labor certification, which is commonly now referred to as the PERM, 
with the DOL before filing the I-140 petition. Okay. So that is one of the biggest attractions for the EB1C in addition to others that we will address as we go along. Sure, sure. Thank you, Kenya. Joanna, if I can come to you. So what are the criteria or the legal requirements for an employee to be eligible to qualify under the EB1C category? So in order to qualify and be sponsored under the EB1C category, an individual has to have worked abroad for a qualifying entity, as we've discussed, for at least one year within three years, either preceding the filing of the, the I-140 petition, or if they transferred to the company, we'll get into that a little later, there are some exceptions to the one in three year rule. But importantly, that position abroad needs to be managerial or executive, and they need to be coming to the US to work in a managerial or executive position. That's an important distinction because in the L1A context, you could have worked abroad in a specialized knowledge capacity, but you're coming to work in the managerial position. Whereas for the EB1C category, both the position abroad within the one year in the last three years and the position in the US with the related entity needs to be with in, in a managerial or executive capacity. Okay, thank you. So generally, if the foreign national is already in the United States, then the three-year period within which the one year of employment should have occurred is the three-year period immediately preceding that individual's entry into the U.S. in a non-immigrant category such as an L or an H status to work in the related company. Um, on the other hand, we find that in order to qualify for the EB1C, the U.S. petitioner needs to establish certain key factors. Kenya? What yes. are these factors? Okay, these factors are, first of all, you have to establish the qualifying relationship between the companies. The qualifying relationship can be as a parent or a subsidiary, a branch, or an affiliate. Um, so now for an affiliate, that is if the two companies share common ownership. The beneficiary, as we discussed, um, uh, previously was employed for at least one year after the last three years by, by the related entity in a managerial or executive position, which is you know, very important to uh, remember and understand because even if the person is in the USA on L1A as a manager, um, does not mean that it'll automatically qualify for the EB1C if that individual was not employed in a managerial capacity overseas. Because you can obtain L1A even if you were employed in a specialized knowledge capacity overseas. So that's you know one critical difference between the L1A and the EB1C. So just to be clear, all of these three criteria must be satisfied to be eligible. Yes. And what about how do we establish a qualifying relationship between the company abroad and the U.S. company? Well, you need to um, uh, you need to show by documentation the ownership by share certificates, uh, memorandum of understanding, the ownership documents that show that either the the foreign company owns the U.S. company or the U.S. company owns the foreign company or both companies are owned by a common entity or individual. Correct. And I know that we've also talked about this because we have seen it in RFEs issued by the USCIS that just because two companies share the, uh, the same name or have a common name, uh, that automatically does not meet the legal requirements to, for the, to satisfy the qualifying relationship test, the companies should be able to show 
the qualifying relationship, as Kenya just pointed out, through corporate documents such as share certificates and operating agreements to establish the legal corporate relationship between these two companies. And Joanna, uh, where the company abroad is a wholly owned subsidiary, what's required and so in, in circumstances where it's, you know, as Kanye alluded to, in, if it's a wholly owned subsidiary, that likely will be an easier um, test to establish. Because if you 100% own the company abroad, that's easy and you can just show your documentation of your ownership and that's clearly a qualifying relationship. Um, in all circumstances, the key question though, and the key focus should be on ownership, whether you wholly own the company or if it's a shared ownership. For instance, is the foreign company a majority sh- own a majority share of the US company? Or does an individual own both the foreign company and and the U.S. company? Or is each company owned by a common group of people or another's parent company? So it's it need you need to look into the control of the companies and is it an equal control? Is it predominantly you know does one company more predominantly control the other? And really look into those share certificates as well. Okay. Um. And importantly, that is really. If you don't have a qualifying relationship abroad, I mean, it, it ends there. Unfortunately, that is the critical key is to make sure that there is that qualifying relationship within the companies. Even if someone was working in a managerial position, it's not going to qualify for the EB1C classification. Good point. Good point. Thank you, Joanna. So with regard, with regard to the employment period abroad, we've touched upon this briefly before, but when the beneficiary of the employees outside of the United States, it is actually much easier to determine what three-year period to look into. Basically, it is the three-year period immediately preceding the filing of the I-140 petition by the employer. However, where the employee or beneficiary, when the employee is actually working in the United States in another non-immigrant status like an L-1A uh, or the H-1B, uh, or even possibly L-1B though, that would be more problematic as we talked about to file the EB-1C, it can be difficult to determine what three-year period to look into. So Kenya, can you explain that? Because I believe there was a decision from Yes, May fortunately, the USCIS adopted an AAO decision in May of 2018, which provided clear guidance on how to calculate that one year of employment. That is, in cases where the foreign national enters the US to work for the I-140 petitioner, or a related entity, meaning you know an entity that is related to the foreign company, the critical three-year period is the three years preceding the beneficiary's date of admission on that non-immigrant category. This provides more flexibility to the employer and the foreign national worker on the timing of filing EB-1C petitions. But if the foreign national entered the U.S. to work for an unrelated company, then the three-year time period is the period immediately preceding the filing of the petition. Okay, okay. So next, let's touch upon briefly the issue of both what who is a manager and who is an executive and functional manager. So uh, managers are people who are, act, who are actively manage either an organization or a part thereof, like a department within the organization, or they manage a particular function. Managers either oversee the work of other supervisors, managers, or professionals, or they may manage an essential function, which is a functional manager, which we'll touch Mm -hmm. upon in a minute, uh, within the organization. As managers, they exercise discretion 
over day-to-day operations, but they are not supposed to actually do hands-on work at a low level, which is like a big red flag for the USCIS. The hands-on work is supposed to be done by their subordinates, um, and that's why they are very particular about the definition of manager or executive. So is the title manager sufficient, for example, Joanna? Well, no, actually, as, as you've kind of explained, the real analysis is on what the individual is performing. So simply being called a manager is not going to be sufficient. Um, you need to show what the person is responsible for at the company, how she or he does their job, and the type of subordinates that they will manage. A first-line supervisor who's supervising non-managerial and non-professional positions would not qualify for EB1C even if their title included manager. Um, And it's also important to note that more than 50% of the individual's duties should be purely managerial. And when you're filing the petition with USCIS, it's important to document and identify the percentage of time the individual will spend on each duty to show that they are spending at least more than 50% of their time on performing those qualifying managerial duties. Um, And it's important that there should be employees that they have to manage within the U.S., Um, In the past, USCIS would accept if they were managing maybe two people in the U.S. and a larger group of people abroad. But now they really want to understand why is it essential for the person to be in the U.S. And they want to look at how many people they're actually managing in the U.S. So if you have six or seven professional workers reporting to you in the U.S., that, that should be sufficient as long as they are professional positions that require the minimum of a college degree in a particular field, for instance, an engineer or a researcher. Um, this would work for EB1C. On the other hand, if you're managing maybe six or seven sales representatives who aren't required to have a specific degree and wouldn't necessarily be considered a professional position, that would be a much tougher case to win. Also, in the past, the USCIS would accept evidence that the U.S. company is in the process of hiring the subordinates that the individual is coming to manage, but they no longer accept such evidence. You have to show that the individuals to be managed are already employed by the company. And a key point to remember is that USCIS does not consider contract 1099 employees in the employee count. And also it is not enough to provide like an organizational chart where you list a number of employees the individual is going to be supervising or managing. You have to provide actual evidence that these employees are actual W-2 employees of the company and whether they are professionals or managers. You will need to provide pay records, educational documents, job descriptions, etc. Okay. And I know that uh, while talking to other immigration lawyers in a conference fairly recently, I was we were talking about how the USCIS often issues RFEs or notice of intention to deny saying that the person work is not substantially in a managerial or executive capacity. Um, and so the discussion was how much is substantial. And the argument made was like, hey, if it's 51%, that is substantial. Because the government comes back and says, well, they are doing certain low-level functions. Well, they're allowed to do some amount of low-level functions, That's right. um, 10, 20, 30, 40%. But if obviously, if it's more than 51%, now you're talking substantial. So again, a lot of it is what is in the law and regulations, but a lot of it is having a good, strong legal team that's willing to present the arguments and argue within the law and the regulations why a person qualifies for a particular job. Next, we're going to go from the term manager to the functional manager. Functional managers generally are more difficult compared to regular managers. 
because the functional manager, the regular manager sort of oversees the entire organization or a division or department within the organization and they manage professionals reporting to them. But in a, for a functional manager, there are different criteria that needs to be established. Uh, Kenya? Yes, the functional manager you know, generally is chosen because the individual is not actually supervising anybody. There's nobody actually reporting to them, but they are, fa they are managing a major function of the company. So in order to qualify, it's, it's very difficult because it's highly scrutinized. So you have to, the function has to be clearly defined. It has to be a major component of the company and the beneficiary still can't be primarily engaged in hands-on non-managerial work, even if she's not managing people. So you need to show that others are doing the hands-on work of the function that the individual manages. Okay, thank you. The next, the last one, so we have manager, we have functional manager, and then we have executives. So executives, as we know, are responsible for directing the management of the organization or a major component or function within the company. They're supposed to set the policies and goals and they have wide latitude to make important business decisions. They operate with minimal supervision. Most C-level most executives, CEO, CTO, CIO, CFO, all those are obviously considered as high-level, senior-level executives. Um, so obviously, when presenting the case to the USCIS, it is important to point out whether the position is that of a manager or an executive. And if, it is if the position is described as a manager and executive, then the USCIS requires you to satisfy all of the elements of each of the categories. So again, how you present, how your lawyer presents the case can make a big difference in whether you're climbing a steep uphill climb or it's a, hopefully a easier uphill climb to win the case. Okay, so next we're gonna talk about the benefits of the EB1C category. The one thing that we already mentioned briefly was that there is no perm required, so no Department of Labor to bless and say that there's no available U.S. worker to do the position or to work in the position. Uh, so you can the, uh, the employer can file the I-140 petition right away. This can save the company time, money, effort, energy, six to 18 months of time, and the expenses involved like running advertisements, et cetera, right. in the perm. Also, the wait time. It decreases the wait time for certain nationalities. Um, and, and I know that uh, Kenya wanted to talk about like the, the, like currently, for example, in the October 2019 visa bulletin, we have a cutoff date for employment-based first preference, which is so unusual, but not for EB2 and EB3 in the rest of the world. Right. Leave out India for a second. So sometimes it can actually save time to do the EB1C as opposed to going through the whole perm and I-140 and labor process. Because uh, for mm -hmm. the Indian nationals, uh, the, the the employment cutoff date, if you look at the October visa bulletin, which is January 1, 2015, and for EB2, it is May 12, 2019. So even though it seems like only a six-year difference, but the projection is that for the EB2, it may take 20 years versus maybe seven years for the EB1. So it's still far more. So advantage. a Nobel Prize uh, winner has to wait seven years. Gee, what a what a <laughs> wonderful opportunity! 
crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. So, Joanna, who can benefit primarily from the EB-1C filings? So, historically, I mean, employers who had have L-1A employees working in the U.S. would generally rely on the EB-1C. But I, we want to make the point that it's not strictly limited to L-1A employees. You know, if the employee was working abroad, you know, and you're, they're here on H-1B and you just decided to file an H for them instead of an L-1A, even though they were working in a managerial position abroad, and now you have a permanent managerial position to offer them, that would still qualify for EB1C. So, you know, thinking outside the box, looking at the prior um, employment is important to see, you know, it can benefit a wide range of people. Um, and it's important to, to look at all, all options. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And likewise, if a U.S. employee is currently employing individuals in L1A, they cannot assume that the EB1C petition will be approved because USCIS no longer gives deference to private adjudications. Also, the scrutiny whether a position is a qualifying managerial position for EB1C is much higher than it is for an L1A. Again, always we see because the USCIS position is L1A is a temporary short-term job, but the minute you say I'm doing a green card position, permanent position, immigrant visa processing, they immediately make, even though the legal criteria looks very, very similar, they suddenly add on all these additional qualifications or steps in the process. So as all three of us have discussed, you know, the EB1C category for multinational executives or managers is an excellent alternative to the traditional EB2 and EB3 processing by you all as employers because it allows for a significantly shorter wait time for some of your key high-level managers to foreign nationals to get their green card, whether it's managers or executives. It's critically important also when there are children who are hoping to obtain the green card as dependents of the primary beneficiaries, and the cutoff age is 21. But if they have filed the 485, they're okay. But if not, they could be out of luck, and they would then have to do, go through the same process like the individual employees had to go through with the perm and the labor and the I-140, et cetera. Uh, as the EB-1C is a very useful employment-based category, the USCIS has started to more and more heavily scrutinize applications. At the Murthy Law Firm, we are dedicated to, actually, we have a team, a fantastic team, whom you're in talking to right now uh, in today's conference call, uh, uh, who work closely with employers and foreign nationals to navigate the rules, make sure that the employer can qualify, update you on the latest trends, monitor the case law, and see how we can try to win and get this approval for you. Again, it's one more tool in your arsenal as an employer to try and use in order to recruit and retain your top employees so that they don't uh, jump ship and go to the competition. So uh, I don't know if Kenya or Joanna, either one of you has anything else to add because I know we're always sensitive to time-related issues. We try to do most of these within 30 to 45 minutes. Uh, Does anybody else have anything to add? I just want to add one little thing that is even if you're an L1B, the EB1C is is not is still an option. Mm-hmm. It's still an option. It all depends on whether that person did work as a manager overseas. 
Right. So if they worked as a manager or executive overseas, even though they came to this country on maybe a slightly level, maybe as a specialized knowledge worker on L1B, they could still be eligible if they met the legal statutory criteria to satisfy for the EB1C filing. Exactly. Good point. Yeah. One point I just want to add is that we're talking about how you can use this now if they were previously employed abroad, but you can also use it in a strategic way of planning ahead. You know, if you have a company abroad and you have a U.S. employee that you could file an EB2 now for, but it would take 20 years, or you could send them abroad for a year in a managerial position and have them return and then file the EB1C. And many of them do that, especially because by law, unlike the J1 where it's home country requirement return for to back to the country from where you got your visa or where your passport is from or where you recently worked or got your degree medical, in this case, it's not a home country. You could go to Canada, you could mm-hmm. go to Europe, you could mm-hmm. go to London, you could go to Australia, Singapore, you could go anywhere in the world, work with a parent subsidiary branch or affiliate, work for that one year as a senior executive manager, bring this person back, and many, many employees and their families find that highly attractive and even though they're not happy to uproot their lives and their families and their homes and all of that, it's way better than waiting 20 years to go through the processing. Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. So on behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, Kenya Sanders, Joanna Gavigan, and the entire team at the Murthy Law Firm, we thank each of you for joining us today on strategies on how to retain your top talent by using the EB1C multinational executive managerial option. And we look forward to continuing to take care of you with all of your immigration needs at the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you for joining us this afternoon and have a wonderful rest of the day. This is a free service. The content is the protected copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.